Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. We begin another week with the Film Comment Podcast at home, keeping ourselves distracted and hopefully our listeners too. One big way the crisis is affecting the movie business is that it's also another week without new theatrical releases. That might be the least of our concerns at this time, but it's definitely been food for thought among critics and other moviegoers. On this episode, I talked to our weekly critic, Jonathan Romney, who has been adapting his output for the current situation, and that goes for his intake as well. I reached him in London, where he's weathering the crisis at home like the rest of us with a liberal mix of movies and television. Let's go to the conversation, and please stay safe, everyone. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rippold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is another in our series of At Home, the Film Comment Podcast At Home podcasts. And what's been happening is we've been rigging people up and just seeing what they've been watching, how things are, what the view is from where they're sitting. And it keeps us company and keeps us a little sane, um, although it's hard to keep a completely sane perspective uh, in the state of the world as it is today. Um, but we hope you'll enjoy uh, talking about movies for a little while. Uh, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Jonathan Romney. Uh, Jonathan is a contributing editor at Film Comment uh, and is also the author of our Film of the Week uh, column. And Jonathan, you're based in London. How how are things for you there? Uh, well, things are pretty interesting because every day is changing and there is a sense that our government has not quite been on top of the situation. Um there's an extraordinary surge of um, affection and, and sympathy and gratitude towards the um, all the, the many workers of the National Health Service who, of course, um, are very hard-pressed at, at any time normally. And uh, there's always been the feeling that they haven't been fully supported by this Conservative government. Um, the one thing that has happened here is you really get a sense now that it's going to be very hard for this or any government to uh, try and hamstring the NHS and certainly not um, put it, um, you know, as the fear has been um, on tape on the table for uh, business discussions with Trump. Um, but, you know, there has been a weekly cheering um in the evenings, people coming out and leaning out of their windows and clapping for the NHS. Although, of course, you know, with, with typical sort of um, British um, reticence, uh, we do this once a week, although in, in several nations of the world, um, people are doing this every single night. Yes, yes. We, we, we have that here every every single night. And uh, yeah, at 7pm. I mean, it happens daily. So sometimes it happens. And I'm thinking, 
what what happened you know <laughs> what's going on that is there a marching band that people completely flout you know the isolation um orders to do that but then you know it's a, actually a kind of remarkable sense of community and and then like an echo of you know what what we were seeing happen in italy uh with the sort of singing from from balcony tops which is kind Indeed. of a, a a cinematic kind of image in, in itself i guess <laughs> Yeah. And in fact, you know, in some ways we have it easy here. You, you can't help feeling that maybe we have it too easy because we don't have a full lockdown and they've been very um, liberal, some would say lax about telling people, well, of course, you know, you can go out every day and exercise. Um, and we're aware in a lot of places you can't do that. Um, but um, I don't know. It's a very uh, it's a very delicate situation, and um, you know, one thing that's been really shocking is realizing uh, in uh, some places in the world, you know, this has been an opportunity for governments to impose, um, you know, authoritarian strategies, and um, you know, uh, a lot of people are suffering. So. You know, it, 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 quite apart from the illness and the death, I mean, in in many ways, anyone who can just get to stay in calmly by themselves and not face, you know, total financial collapse and and not have those those, um, not not suffer this terrible illness, you know, can can count themselves as being very lucky. But we're all going to have a lot of work to do to you know to reconstruct the world after this. And and you know, the, the startling thing is how short a time it takes for things to start collapsing for a system to yeah. start collapsing which makes you aware both how you know how close we have all um come to you know let's say the razor's edge in, in terms of the sort of tenuous survival both in terms of um the environment and the economy, you know, um, if uh, that's how how quickly um, capitalism can founder, then something clearly wasn't working. Yeah, it. I mean, it does. It does suggest that we've we've all just been on this train, just hurtling forward um, without really, you know, reflecting on it much. And 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 when it's just grinds to a halt, and 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 we kind of can see things as they are. Yeah, it's it opens up, you know, perhaps it opens up a space for for um, brainstorming, shall we say, <laughs> about um, other other ways of, of, of doing things. Um, I mean, I, certainly, you know, just within our corner of the world, um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely thankful for all the things um, you, you mentioned. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's the, the film world is also a place that things have in, in a certain sense ground to a halt as well, simply because of the, you know, lack of uh, theatrical releases because of the cinemas being closed um, then you know people are watching at home which is opens up its own debate which is already ongoing mm. but what's what's been your your perspective on on that from uh, um, from from uh, from where you are well I can't I can't help worrying about cinemas closing because obviously so many businesses restaurants cafes other you know shops private privately owned spaces 
with not a great deal of financial backing, they're going to shut down. And of course, you know, you worry about those places being moved in on by by corporations. You know, is it going to be that, you know, all these places will get turned into uh, multiplexes or Starbucks or God knows what? Um, you know, in Britain, we're, we're in a very delicate situation in terms of independent cinema uh, exhibition and distribution. You know, there's a handful of remaining independent distributors uh, who have always sort of had to sail quite close to the edge. And I really hope that um, they survive through this because, um, you know, we need them for, you know, the real diversity in um, programming. Um, my, if, if I had to do a bit of crystal gazing, and it's probably with us mm-hmm. already, so I'm probably, you know, on, on the slow side here, but I suspect that we are going to have a lot of uh, DIY um, movies, uh, no-budget movies, sitcoms, all based on Zoom conferencing. Um, I also imagine that a lot of filmmakers are, are going to sort of um, resort to the Alain Cavalier approach. You know, there was a time when Alain Cavalier stopped making conventional movies and started making these really extraordinary minimalist diary films, which tended to focus on his life as seen through various objects on his tabletop or his kitchen table or his desk. So I think suddenly we may be in for a kind of Alain Cavalier revival, you know, at least in terms of method, whether or not people actually watch his films right a lot of uh yeah still lives and diaristic uh <laughs> filmmaking and i mean i've been sort of wondering if if the i mean you know filmmakers aren't aren't always that aren't always the type to be stopped by obstacles so i wonder even you know despite the the directors not to go outside that if you do go outside you all of a sudden have the whole world is your set now <laughs> um i mean minus cars so maybe yeah. you could shoot period pieces now and mm. or maybe we'll just have a lot of drone shots that then we'll cut abruptly to just a series of interior scenes yeah and a lot of empty streets some of them filmed from windows and rooftops. actually I, I i did have this very poignant sense the other day i watched a film uh, a three-hour um a kind of a diary slash documentary film uh, by Kali Kala, the New York-based filmmaker, who um, it's called IWOW, I Walk on Water. And it's uh, a sort of self-portrait, but also a portrait of people um, in an environment he's filmed before, specifically, you know, street people uh, on one street corner, uh, Lexington and uh, 125th. And having watched this film last week, I couldn't help thinking, wow, you know, how many of them are still with us? You know, how many of them are still healthy? How many of them have been able to find uh, shelter and safety? So, um, you know, which maybe has, you know, really changed its meaning and its resonance um, since he shot it. In fact, it is shot very, very recently. You know, there's footage from um, last December, um, yeah. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. I. It's funny you bring that up because I. I. Uh, we. We just posted um, a. A kind of round table that I do at True False, um, uh, film festival in, in in Columbia, Missouri, and I saw that film there, and you know it was. 
it was um, received with some mixed reactions. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I do agree that you know, thinking about it now, you you do kind of zero in more on the precarious state of, of everyone and how stark, you know, if 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 all the things just seemed. Yeah, everything just is is more even more immediate uh, than than it was before, and, and you're immediately aware of the different ways everyone will be affected, um, and that's it's not there. There's a terrible cliche that's that's taken hold of it's here and there that you know the the corona does not discriminate. You know, everyone you know, rich or poor, is affected, and it's like that's really not not true. Um, but how, where did you uh, watch watch that film, or what was that in, in connection to? I'm just curious. Oh well, I ended up watching it online because I was reviewing it for um, uh, Screen Daily, um, which oh, okay. is covering some of the films at CPH Docs, which um, you know put it a, a lot of its content online. So it's what it's been, been one of the first you know virtual festivals of this season, and presumably there will be many more to come. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yes, and here I'll give a little plug for um, your weekly column where you you did a piece about some of the earliest efforts to make festivals have a online life. Um, and yes, yeah, CPH Docs is one one of the more um, more comprehensive in, in in a way. I mean, everyone's doing different versions of it, but uh, yeah, there are, there are a number of films to to look at uh, there. And so I'm just curious in terms of reviewing that that means that. You, you know effectively for screen that those are that's the way those films are alive so to speak or have a life yeah and it's going to be really interesting because um a lot of um you know major releases have been pulled now um we don't know when they're going to emerge um there's obviously going to be a real log jam uh when this thing ends, um, and um, you know the the, the major studios uh, will obviously uh, survive in their own in their own way. I think we 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 don't need to be too worried about them. But of course, um, the real struggle is going to be for smaller films and smaller distributors to you know be able to publicize themselves in a way and persuade people to um to pay to watch films uh you know given how much they can uh, immerse themselves in uh Netflix and other platforms and uh i guess you know who who is really going to do well out of this situation well Netflix for one Disney plus for another um which i can't say i'm in a hurry to delve into but i will at some time but um yeah yeah no it's it's true i mean it's it's sort of it's not necessarily the the on the same analogy as you know what happened to the dinosaurs where all the tiniest uh you know mammals were the ones that survived after the meteor or something um in this case the the behemoths might be the one that are better positioned um to open up um although they are even more entirely dependent on you know having these 3000 theater openings um, which is probably why why they, they all pushed pushed back pretty fairly far yeah. um, and also yeah. they're very dependent on the chinese market as well right which which interestingly enough actually opened its theaters i guess a, um, a, a week ago though that didn't seem to i don't know what the latest is on that but it seems they opened a lot of their their cinemas and then rela- then obviously <laughs> it kind of you know wasn't working out quite well yeah. um but they were also showing classic films uh, or certain, which I thought was interesting. And I, I was 
I was wondering if that's, you know, does, does it mean that there might be a return or resurgence some, some way of, of, you know, re- revival, retrospective programming, if, if there's, uh, you know, a clog in the pipeline or a log jam, whatever one wants to say, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's somewhat difficult to, uh, to predict, but I, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely concerned about, um, cinemas across, across the United States, you know, um, it's, it's, never been a, a very you know very easy thing to to run a thriving um single screen or two screen uh, art house theater um and so that's that's i don't know that's always a source of concern yeah and i think people will have a real hunger to go out and actually watch movies live with other people and have that I agree. kind of experience but the problem is there's not going to be that much disposable income you know a lot of people are really going to be facing economic hard times so cinemas will have to strike that balance between ticket prices that allow them to survive and prices that are actually um tempting you know, because I mean, standard ticket prices in London already, even for you know some of the um, the repertory or not repertory, but art house chains, uh, are pretty extravagant. And you know, it makes me uh, thank God I can go to press shows. But um, hmm. um, yeah. I think people are going to have to think very carefully about that to actually make it worthwhile. People coming in again and, and try and democratize cinema going again so that it's not this deluxe experience that it's been marketed as in years you know i mean for many of us it is quite seriously a necessity yeah you know it's yeah our life and you know uh we with that you know that's how we that's how we see it and that's how we feel it and um that's why we want it to survive yeah well ha- yeah well, how how have you been uh, how have you been dealing with this this sort of um, this 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 break from actual theater theater going? Have you been um, watching anything uh, particular? Are there are there any sort of comfort food movies you you've returned to? Or um... yeah, I haven't really done that. Um, mm-hmm. I've still got a stack of things that I don't know when the hell I'm going to get around to watching. And <laughs> you know, there are all these people saying, "Oh, well, we've got this wonderful opportunity or this leisure time now. We're going to read." Proust and you know oh I just finished Moby Dick for the third time in a week and (laughs) Ulysses and whatnot I mean you've got to be able to concentrate uh, in order to read and at the moment I I do feel like reading more than I feel like watching films but I haven't done that much of either um one thing I'm doing is uh, I teach at the National Film and Television School and um the school has been very um, together about you know carrying on uh, making sure that students can work online so I've been working on Zoom two or three days a week which is um, you know kind of an eye strain um, I usually have to go and sort of uh, put in some eye drops after a day but it it certainly kind of concentrates the mind and you know I think it's 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 I hope it's good for the students but it's certainly good for us I mean I certainly appreciate it and also um, the school has been really good in, um, uh, you know, my, my colleagues have organized um, getting in some major names to do um, uh, live um, 
video masterclasses. So, um, you know, people like David Fincher and Steve McQueen and Sam Mendes, you know, uh, Edgar Wright, you know, it's been fantastic. So people that you you normally uh, wouldn't uh, necessarily get to uh, turn up in a venue easily, um, you know, they can do it online. And, and it's been, unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't actually sat in on any of these, but, uh, you mm-hmm. know, fantastic thing. Um, yeah. As far as watching things, uh, some of it has emerged from my teaching, and uh, we did a long session on Sergei Loznitsa recently. Mm. Oh, wow. Watched his film uh, My Joy, which is his first fiction film, which was never released theatrically in the UK. And it's such a devastating, bleak view of the world. But, you know, I do think that Loznitsa is one of the the great contemporary directors and one of the most ambitious and looking yeah. at his documentaries, you know, whether they're about the present day or whether they're um, archive based um, like uh, state funeral about the um, ceremonies uh, following the death of Stalin, um, you know, really extraordinary films. And I was, I was very happy to go back to my joy Um and you know, if ever a film um, was at odds with its title, this is one. <laughs> but a real yeah. devastating film. Yeah, I wonder if just just for listeners, if you could kind of recap a bit what uh, what that film is about. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, my, my joy, um, not to be confused with um, uh, Kelly Reichardt's um, old joy, which <laughs> also watch uh, for a session at the school. Um, it's about, uh, basically it's about what you might call the old weird Russia. It's about a truck driver who, um, gives someone a lift and goes off the main road and into, uh, the backwoods, the hinterlands of Russia, uh, which proves to be this kind of endless labyrinth and terrible things happen to him, but there are also stories that are told flashbacks to, uh, horrific episodes in World War II. Um, and it's a very, very bleak, disturbing picture of, of the human condition and it, it sort of, and, and of Russian power systems. And it really suggests that in many ways, you know, nothing has changed since, not just since World War II, but since the, the, the Tsarist era. And actually there are images in this film uh, and, and characters who could almost have walked out of some of those 19th century uh, Riepin paintings of, um, you know, peasants in the, uh, you know, mm. in the, uh, you know, in Siberia or wherever. Um, I mean, there's a real sense of, you know, rootedness in, in, in the deep Russian past, but, but a great, great film. Almost um, elements of, you know, a Russian deliverance or, you um, uh, a touch of David Lynch, even, but um, you know, I think a really underrated film. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I remember that making quite a stir when it uh, screened here in the New York Film Festival, and 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 it's 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 really interesting that that you are watching that because the more I think about it, he he just does seem like a filmmaker where watching his work might. Uh, educate us uh, quite a bit about where we are right now just because uh, it's he, he has this you know peculiar 
um, way of, of restaging history in a way as well and, and finding different ways and different variations on, on doing that. Um, and, um, but just with, with my joy, uh, it, it's when I think about that, that's also interesting because that's a film that kind of posits that you go into the hinterlands and that's like, you know, um, looking, looking beyond the, uh, and that's how you are, you get to under the surface and, and, you know, behind the, the facade, that's where things are, are actually happening. But, you know, at the moment it feels like there is no facade anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's been torn off everywhere in, in a way to a certain extent. Um, so uh, watching that um, must be pretty interesting. But yeah. when you were talking, I also just started thinking about, you know, the, the historical documentary work he, he, he's done, like, you know, about, uh, you know, with, with Austerlitz um, or even with Donbass, the, the, the vignettes there that are all, that a lot of it, I think, is, is based upon actual actual news stories and anecdotes um and it's it yes it does seem like he's 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 doing something that um is is worth revisiting i i um if if people can find those films yeah and if you get a chance to see of any, any of his early films uh the more kind of impressionistic portraits of uh russian landscape and people in the landscape uh they really are extraordinary films yeah so, so that's Sergei Lesnitz's My Joy, which I think was 10 years ago, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. In terms out. of uh, comfort viewing, uh, mm-hmm. two things. Um, we're, we're inevitably, you know, as cinema people, we're inevitably going to be inclined to demonize Netflix to a degree. But, <laughs> um, you know, the content is really so good. Um, there's such good stuff there. And the thing that has given me more pleasure watching at home in recent years than anything, um, and which I find is simply one of the most complex, intelligent, sophisticated, insightful um, statements on the human condition. And I finally finished. The sixth and final series is Bojack Horseman, which is just um, a prodigy of um, (laughs) of TV. Um, Do you watch it? I I have not. I've watched uh, I've watched scattered episodes. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, the thing about Bojack Horseman for 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 people who haven't seen it, I mean, it's incredibly smart. Um, You can't really watch scattered episodes because there is a real continuity in the way that the running gags and the plot threads are woven through over six series uh, is very, very sharp. But basically it starts off as quite a, well, as an extremely cynical uh, satire on of um, Hollywood and show business folly and vanity and narcissism. Um, it's basically about a sitcom star of the 90s who's kind of fallen on the hard times and is forgotten and is sitting in his... Uh, uh, his modernist Hollywood mansion, um, wallowing in drink, drugs, self-pity, and uh, kind of, um, you know, idiot uh, machismo. But the, the whole point about it is he is a horse, um, <laughs> or, or rather he is a human being with the head of a horse. So it's situated in this world in which the characters are either human or they're animal 
human hybrids. So you get characters like, you know, a, a film director with a head of a spider who's, of course, called Quentin Tar- Tarant- Tarantulino. Um, you did have these wonderful um, animal puns all the way through. But it's filled with in-jokes, and they have these running characters who, you know, who really develop in a very, um, a very nuanced way. Um, and very often, you know, particular episodes will slip into a different style, but it's so good on, on, you know, showbiz folly and narcissism and, you know, the emptiness of the star system. Um, but not from a kind of, you know, lofty position. It's, um, you know, it's, it's smart, it's subtle. Um, it can be quite broad, uh, but you so weirdly, you know, you really engage with these characters, even if you know, even if they are part animals. So, for example, Bojack's um, agent and former lover is a pink cat called Princess Carolyn. Um, his arch rival is um, a, a, a sort of idiot jock who is also a Labrador dog called Peanut <laughs> Butter. And, um, you know, these characters really come alive and over six series. Um, it's uh, by the end of it, it's, it's very dark. It's very moving. There's an extraordinary episode, which is in t- about 20, 20, 25 minutes each. And one episode consists entirely um, of the very, very bleak funeral um, speech that uh, Bojack gives to uh, an important character in his life. There's also uh, an episode in which uh, a character dies and you just, you just gasp, you know, because it's so poignant and so, and so daring. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's a very, very, it's a very, very smart series. And, uh, you know, the, the, the animation can be quite sort of crude on one level, but it's very, it's very cleverly done. Uh, the only thing that spoiled the final series for me was uh, a strand with a couple of characters, which sort of was a little too smart-ass for its own sake. There's a uh, a reporter character who is basically, um, you know, Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday, uh, except <laughs> a wild boar. And you thought, mm, yeah, okay, this is sort of a little over. It's a little too clever for its own good sometimes, but at its best, it is it is one of the marvels of modern television. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heiss's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. What I've seen and, and, you know, just thinking about the show, I, 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 it, it's, it's, it was interesting to me because it seemed like something that in slight variation on our universe might have also emerged in the 90s when there was kind of a, a wave of, uh, you know, meta or reflexive um, shows about, uh, you know, Hollywood um, and, you know, with, with the great highlight for me being, um, you know, the, the um, Larry Sanders, yeah, uh, yeah, which is 
just sort of absolute pinnacle f- for me. Um, it, it's somehow being like an, an it's, you know, an amazing um, show about um, just showbiz and, but also kind of beating, you know, decades of, of, of workplace uh, comedies at their, at their own, at their own game by being yeah. also an, an incredible look at a, yeah. a workplace and working with that's centered around a sort of single creative force. Um, mm. Also, you know, besides Gary Shandling, just rip torn. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> just can't get enough. Well, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in that meta tradition and, and it actually has uh, a number of uh, well-known people playing cartoon versions of themselves. Most weirdly in, in a very, very bizarre running joke, Margot Martindale, who, who plays herself as esteemed character actor, Margot Martindale. And, uh, <laughs> You've got to say everyone in this is very game, um, particularly Jessica Biel, whose whose character offers a very sort of wry take on, um, you know, her career path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 and I just remembered what particular uh, particular thing was coming to mind with BoJack. It, it feels like a, a, a like an unmade pilot that Ben Stiller might have come up with in the '90s or something. That that finally, you know, somehow find found its way to be born mm. um, more, more, more recently. Um, so BoJack Horseman, <laughs> I, it's it's been funny. Uh, you know, obviously we've 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 all been watching um, some some television as as part of our our daily. Um, diet. I mean, for me, I've been watching this uh, um, sh- also um, on uh, net- Netflix, a, a, a Japanese show that maybe you've you've seen a little bit of, Giri Haji, mm-hmm. um, which is this. Uh, it's it's actually uh, Manola was talking about it on now now that I think about it um, on on this uh, podcast when she was on last. Uh, last week, so um, maybe I'll just refer you to <laughs> to her comments about it. But it's you know it's about um, a Japanese policeman who comes to look for his um, brother, who is a yakuza assassin um, uh, in 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 hiding in exile in London, um, and then crosses paths. Uh, oh with, yeah, I've heard about. Yeah, I've heard about this. Um, the other thing that I really recommend, I, I just watched a while ago, um, and apparently uh, season three is up now. Is uh, Babylon Berlin, which uh, I discovered right. because David Thompson uh, said it was like his uh, his um, Damascus. Uh, it really turned him onto TV again. It was, I think, it was that and uh, Mad Men, was it, or Breaking Bad? Anyway, th- there were two series that that had kind of turned his life around in terms of TV, and one of them was Babylon Berlin, um, which is really worth watching. And uh, it's run by Tom Tikva and some other people, mm-hmm. and it's basically um, it's kind of James Elroy meets. Th- those Fritz Lang serials in Weimar, Berlin. And um, <laughs> it's very extravagant. Uh, there are some terrible kind of dance hall sequences that are pure uh, Baz Luhrmann. So, you know, you might want to skip those. But um, <laughs> that's a really, really kind of involved, um, tightly meshed um thriller i mean it's really extraordinary and and actually i watched the first two seasons which seemed so perfectly um you know to 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 achieve you know a perfect two series arc 
and I can't really imagine where it will go after that. But um, yeah. anyway, these no. one and two are wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, that show just it's it seems like a. I, I mean, it, it really it's, it seems like a remarkable accomplishment. Just this kind of is that is that shot in the studio Babelsberg, or I, I sort of remember I, that. I think so yeah, almost certainly it would make sense. Yeah. So it just seems like this totally total mobilization, like on a studio scale, um, except uh, you know, spanning several several episodes. It's um, um, yeah, that's it's been, it's, it, that's I've I've heard that from from another a, a number of people as, mm. as well. This this kind of um, yeah, fe- f- retro feast in, in a way. The other um, thing I, I'd recommend that's German um, is um, there is a fantastic series on Netflix again called Dark, which is um, a sort of science fiction time travel series, and it's set in a small town. And it starts off, you know there's a touch of Twin Peaks and there's a touch of, um, I don't know if you ever saw that French series, um, The Returned. Um, and it's mm. that kind of, you know, eerie mm. realism. But it's about a time portal. Um, but the premise is that whether wherever you go in time, whether it's forward or back, you can only travel exactly 33 years. So what that means is you've got an incredibly <laughs> elaborate time scheme, which is sort of stacked in three layers. So every character is played by three different actors at different ages. Um, and it's quite extraordinary because, you know, you'll have someone as a child and then you'll have them as an adult and then you'll have them, you know, 33 years on. And you think, well, wow, how did they do that? And, as as a feat in casting, it's absolutely remarkable because everyone looks absolutely right. Mm. But the other thing about it is the fiendish degree of plotting. I mean, they must have, you know, you, you imagine in order to work out the plot, um, which incidentally is about to move as far as I can see in the next series into some sort of parallel dimension, you know, they must have kind of three dimensional versions of, you know, in those movies where sort of serial killers kind of map things out on their walls and everything <laughs> by, by ribbons and, you know, and arrows, this photo leads to that newspaper cutting. And in fact, mm-hmm. there are a few of those walls uh, in the film itself, but um, you can't <laughs> imagine how they worked out the narrative. And it, it's, unbelievably intricate and ingenious and very very involving but you, you you probably need to watch with someone so that between you you can remind each other who the hell that character was <laughs> piece it piece it together gradually yeah well that makes me wonder if um if if lost might might get its uh you know have another in a series of revivals um with uh, just in terms of keeping track of a story like that and, and being stranded as, as so to speak. Um, yeah. I never saw that. What, what I actually intend to do at some point, my the number one on my, my uh, watching wants list uh, when, uh, when I have a bit of quiet over um, the next couple of weeks is the 13 hour Argentinian film La Flor by ah. Mariano Clinas, 
who made uh, an extraordinary film, an extraordinary film indeed, called Extraordinary Stories a few years ago, which is a kind of weird sort of crisscrossing sort of portmanteau story within story construction. Um, and I'm not sure if this is in the same vein, but I've heard incredible things about it. And um, uh, mm. that was an, that was a remarkable film. Uh, this yeah. one is uh, 13 hours. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's something weird. I mean, it's in episodes. Uh, and it's also, I believe it's streaming live. I mean, it's streaming free now. So yeah. if, you, um, mm-hmm. if you look for La Flore, uh, it's apparently... Uh, ready, ready to watch in the comfort of your right. home. I mean, it's very weird the situation at the moment um, with with this horror going on. It actually feels. I was trying to think what it was like and how I felt, kind of waking up every morning and realizing that you know nothing had changed. Um, and it's actually like that feeling you get in a film festival when you're tired and you, you fall asleep in a long movie, you know, like in a, in a, a Lampiaz <laughs> or something, you know, and you kind of wake up and you think, oh my God, is it still going on? And that's exactly what <laughs> Yeah, it, it never ends. I, I certainly hope there's a happy ending or some sort of <laughs> less than horrible ending to, to all of this. Um, but yeah, I mean, just it, thinking about the, you, you know, tying together uh, LaFleur, which I think Grasshopper, uh, the American distributor um, may still have streaming. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was sort of a limited time, but it's, uh, it's worth, worth checking. But it's interesting that we moved from those Netflix shows to something like LaFleur um, because I've always wondered, you know, in some ways, um, just how much overlap there is, you know, it's, you, it's, you start wondering if there's a high low thing going on that how much different is it are parts of LaFleur, which are striking a certain, you know, ironic or distance posed about the conventions they're using um, from shows that are just, you know, f- going into them full force. Well, I think there is a real hunger, which has been revealed, um, in the last few years of television for for long form narrative and narrative of complexity and narrative that that uh you know doesn't follow a straight line but shoots out in different directions and you know in a way we're we're hungering for some of the narrative pleasures that people discovered with the novel in the 19th century uh, mm-hmm. whether it was uh you know the long single novel you know dickens or victor hugo or or novels which um you know expanded in cycles you know balzac zola etc and um I think there is this discovery of commitment to one narrative and seeing seeing a story through, you know, which is why um, uh, Mad Men was so successful and uh, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, which I still haven't watched to this day. Uh, but I think you're okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's something that you know. Of course, I was very, very committed to to the idea, you know, both in fiction and in film, of you know, uh, you know, destroying the narrative paradigm and all of that. And you know, I got into the Nouveau Roman when I was studying French, and you know, all these wonderful novels which don't have narratives. You know, isn't it cool? But at the same time, I think at some t- sometimes, you know, we absolutely have a thirst for narrative and complex, extended narrative to give us not only um, access to imaginary alternative worlds, but to give us 
um, you know, the uh, the mental tools to to understand the complexity of our own world. And um, uh, of course, now there's this pressure, you know, that you feel like you you have to commit to, you know, God knows how many uh, long form series. And what I'm interested in, of course, is the way that we always assume that stories will find resolution. Uh, but of course, the problem with TV is, you know, you do one season and then another and then another and actors drop out or plot threads have to be um, abandoned or, or rewritten or, or, or hurriedly sewed up. Um, you know, one of the really interesting, I mean, I mentioned Lav Diaz a moment ago and one of the things that I find really fascinating about him, I mean, I absolutely love his cinema, but one of the things is the way that he he has to wrangle with narrative because in some of his longer films, um, you know, he shot them over long periods and then suddenly, um, you know, an actor would have to drop out. I think in some cases they've uh, either died or gone to prison and then he'll have to rewrite the narrative entirely in mid-film and send the story shooting off in a completely... Um, uh, unpredicted direction, and um, you know, which is rather like uh, the way uh, TV series are made. But um, we should also uh, use this time to read some of those longer novels as well, because um, uh, it's probably you know, um, it, it probably won't help the eye strain if we're staring at screens all day. But um, at least yeah, it's I've... flickering in our eyes. Yeah, I, I, it's making me flash back to a, a story in this book, uh, Einstein's Dreams, that I think came out in the early 90s or something. And just in, envisioning these different alternate realities and, you know, what if the world was like this? What if the world was like this? And, and you know, a world where everyone lived forever uh, was one of the worlds. And there were two types of people in the world. Um, one of them was people who said, oh, my God, I have all this time. I'm going to get I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to read all of Proust. I'm going to read all of Balzac. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, watch every, every single, um, you know, Hitchcock film 19 times. Um, and then the other part of the people were, who were people who, who were, you know, that were saying, well, I have all the time in the world. There's no rush. I don't really have to do anything. So you get these two, you know, very different ways yeah. of, of approaching the notion of an open-ended uh, uh, time frame. But actually, on this point, I have to tell you my favorite story about, you know, the 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 agony, the pressure of having stuff to read. Um, and mm -hmm. this is, I, I once attended a lecture by uh, the great scholar and writer George Steiner, who died recently. And oh, wow. I'm going to slightly misquote him here, but uh, it's because, you know, one of the world's most erudite figures, you know, the modern age, extraordinary. Um, and he was talking about, you know, the agony of basically, you know, so many books, so little time. And the story, he said, he it's basically like this, you know, he said, every day, five days a week, I walk past a certain set of shelves on the fifth floor of the West Wing of the Cambridge University Library, and every day I pass the shelf on which is held, you know, I can't remember what it was, the, uh, the uh, 1872 um, re-edition of the 23-volume minutes of the 1543 Synod of Utrecht, like and he said one of those works without a knowledge of which we simply cannot hope to have even the most basic understanding of uh the uh 
culture within which we live. And yet every day when I pass these shelves and see these books, I'm struck each time by the tragic sense that in the limited time that remains to me as a scholar on this earth, I will never have time to reread these works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and here I am worrying because I've only made it halfway through series two of Breaking Bad, you know. <laughs> I'm humbled. Yes, it is. It is pretty, pretty humbling. That yeah, it's it's always infuriating. Um, the, the people who can actually get through a huge quantity of material. Um, well, I I I just um just before we wrap up, I I just wanted to share one one piece of viewing I've been doing. Um, uh, you know, in in addition to all our our, our Netflix viewing, um, I I had had a wonderful opportunity finally to. Uh, see or watch or experience um it's kind of what's essentially a combination film and performance piece uh called my first film by zia anger um and it's it's a it's a piece that previously has shown in 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 theaters and festivals um and but now uh the filmmaker she is offering as a kind of uh, home experience so um and it's it's basically a kind of meta making of uh, slash commentary about the process of making her first feature but that immediately spirals out into just reflections um on um, just yeah reflections on on, on, on being alive and, and being a, being a woman and and kind of sardonic uh, remembrances of, of of uh you know aspects of, of growing up and, and and family um but and again i actually don't know how how i, I don't know the variations that there might have been on it because i've only seen this one version uh which which she offers uh through twitter you'll you'll see her suddenly tweet and say next 50 people who respond i'll you know we'll, i'll give a code to watch and and then she she performs live it's you, you basically see her desktop and part of it is a screen that is shows excerpts from this first feature which appears to run in excess of two hours um and and in which her friend um, plays opposite her father, um, and uh, who, and her, her friend plays a woman who believes uh, who 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 is is pregnant and and is is sort of dealing with that in a in a small town setting with a kind of galoot of a, of a boyfriend. And but there's also a, you know there's also a component of just text uh, where Zia Anger is is sort of commenting on on the proceedings and. Um, sort of narrating it basically so it's it's almost more like a, a narrated piece in that regard um and the f- again i don't know if this was standard but before the show actually began she had she distributed clips among all the people an assortment of clips from her instagram uh among all the people who were watching um uh, which was a kind of i'm sure there's some network theory way of describing this that it was like a not not like a sequential rather than distributed method of 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 conveying um um information um and which is also kind of a fascinating what it's you know it's almost like a fire line approach uh to the internet what if we each just handed one thing to another and i i can say it was it was a pretty 
w- w- remarkable experience. At the same time, I also realized I was coming at it from a certain perspective, which is, you know, not a person who, say, for example, is is a big gamer. Um, and I, I I think there's some interesting overlap, and and, it, and it's it's probably commenting on that a little, and in, in how one interacts with a, a, a you know a larger community, and in, in that sense, and is and um, although this is. You know, you, you're you're seeing something on screen and also having chat next to it, um, which happens on on, on here uh, with uh, my first film. That's totally different phenomenon, but it just occurred to me that the screen within screen um, is is a pretty, you know, in in some ways a, a part of d- daily life. Um, so I, I was very happy to finally watch watch this. I'm sorry, I've kind of gone on about it because it takes a long time to to dis- describe it. But if, if you want to, my first. My first film, um, first and it's film. Zia Anger with a Z, with a Z, yeah. and um, yeah, I guess you'll just have to sit and watch her Twitter account. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, you know, obviously it was also nice participating in something that was a, a performance um, and, and was live. Um, so that's, that's, you know, even... Even even this a smidgen of, of some some return to something live and right. simultaneous and and human because she she just ends with a almost a direct uh, appeal individually to, to everyone. Uh, it was you know it's gives you a warm feeling um, a bit. So I take what I can take uh, take everything um, I, I can I can get in that regard. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Great. Um, well, uh, I guess we'll we'll leave it at, at that. Um, Jonathan, thanks for for taking some time uh, out of uh, <laughs> out of isolation, like all of us, to reach out. <laughs> uh, no, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Um, what was the line they used to say on uh, every week on Hill Street Blues? Uh, Let's be careful out there. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, good good luck, good health, uh, good sanity, everyone. Thank you. Uh, and long live film comment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, stay safe, everyone, and thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Bye. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.